Hello, everyone. Thanks so much for joining us on episode 92 of the Practicology Podcast. We've got a good one for you today that we pray will be a blessing to you and, again, to the honor and glory of our Lord Jesus. Mike, you've titled this, What to Do When You Find the Bible Culturally Embarrassing. So that's a fascinating title. What kind of situation do you have in mind to help us with today? Well, picture a Christian woman, and she gets up early in the morning to read her Bible, and her reading plan has her in Numbers 5. Oh boy. Uh, She gets to the last half of the chapter and notices that the publisher has put a heading over this section called A Test for Adultery. Hmm, this will be interesting. She thinks, not sure how I'll get the spiritual nourishment I'm desperately needing to get through this day, but here goes. And so this is what she reads. Numbers 5 verse 11 says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, If a man's wife goes astray and is unfaithful to him, so that another man has sexual relations with her, and this is hidden from her husband and her impurity is undetected, since there is no witness against her and she has not been caught in the act, and if feelings of jealousy come over her husband and he suspects his wife and she is impure, or if he is jealous and suspects her even though she is not impure, then he is to take his wife to the priest. He must also take an offering of a tenth of an ephah of barley flour on her behalf. And uh, it goes on to say that this is a grain offering for jealousy, a reminder offering to draw attention to wrongdoing. Well, I haven't finished the reading there yet, Matthew, but uh, the passage goes on to outline what happens next. The priest takes some holy water in a clay jar, sprinkles some dust from the tabernacle floor into it, and uh, while the wife holds the grain offering, the priest holds the water, and he puts her under the following oath. Uh, If no other man, this is what he says, if no other man has had sexual relations with you, and you have not gone astray and become impure while married to your husband, May this bitter water that brings a curse not harm you. But if you have gone astray while married to your husband, and you have made yourself impure by having sexual relations with a man other than your husband, here the priest is to put the woman under this curse. May the Lord cause you to become a curse among your people when he makes your womb miscarry and your abdomen swell. May this water that brings a curse enter your body so that your abdomen swells or your womb miscarries. Well, the woman then is to respond and say, Amen, so be it. Quite a daily reading. (laughs) Yes, that's right. And it's not over yet, uh, because the the priest is to write these curses on a scroll, and he washes them off into the water, and then he does indeed make the woman drink the bitter water that brings a curse. And uh, if she's been impure, well, the result will be that once she's drunk the water, uh, it'll cause bitter suffering. It'll enter her. Her abdomen will swell, her womb will miscarry, and she will become a curse. If, however, the woman had not made herself impure and been unfaithful, but but acted cleanly, then she will be cleared of guilt and will be able, verse 28, to have children. Verse 29, this then is the law of jealousy. When a woman goes astray and makes herself impure while married to her husband, or when feelings of jealousy come over a man, because he suspects his wife. Yeah, so how's that for a chapter for the day? And maybe this Christian woman that uh, I mentioned earlier as she, as she reads this chapter, maybe um, she's not only not received any comfort or strength from her daily Bible time, but maybe reading this passage has actually made her feel worse. Her anxieties haven't evaporated, they've multiplied. Maybe she's thinking to herself, 
Uh, wow, that sounds a little unscientific. I mean, I know, uh, you know, lie detectors are flawed too, but they've got to be better than mixing some dust into a cup of water and, and saying to someone, here, drink this. But never mind the unscientific aspect of it. Um, the passage seems a little one-sided in favor of men. It's all about what if a man suspects his wife has been unfaithful? Well, what about the opposite scenario? What if a woman suspects her husband has cheated on her? Doesn't God care about that? And then the last verse of the chapter, which I haven't read yet, this is the ultimate kicker. Because the last verse says, the husband will be innocent of any wrongdoing, but the woman will bear the consequences of her sin. And she and this, this lady, she thinks, what? So the husband can mess around all he wants and go free? But the poor woman, if she does anything wrong, she has to bear the consequences? Is this, you know, a boys will be boys kind of approach to things? Very unfair? Maybe deep inside our sister in Christ finds some terrifying thoughts rolling through her heart. Thoughts that sound eerily similar to uh, the messaging that we pick up in the culture around us. Thoughts like, ah, maybe the Bible is out of date and archaic. Maybe, maybe God... The God of the Bible does view men as a bit more important than women. Maybe the Bible is oppressive to women like me. So, Matthew, that's a long answer to your question, but, but this is the kind of situation I have in mind when I say that sometimes believers find the Bible culturally embarrassing. Well, that was a long answer, but it was a good one. You've, you've uh, set the scene very well, and I'm glad you're talk tackling this because there are other examples in Scripture, too. I mean, somebody can be reading in the Old Testament about the conquest of the Canaanites and find that a little bit upsetting in the instructions that were given to Israel, or passages in the law that talk about slaves and the regulation of slaves. And I mean, that's a, that's a sensitive issue to discuss in the culture today. Maybe a couple decades ago, a, a big objection that people would have raised against Christianity was, I don't know, how can a loving God send people to hell? And that's still on people's minds today, I know that, but maybe the, the more significant objections that we would deal with in the culture today relate to what the Bible says about slavery or the conquest of the Canaanites or the Bible's teaching on sexuality, right? Yeah, and Christians aren't immune to this. We, we feel the pressure coming off the culture on these things. And, and maybe we're tempted, if we're going to give someone, an unsafe person, a Bible, we're tempted to give them a Bible with the Old Testament sawed off. And, and in our daily readings, we read passages and we think, oh, I hope my unsafe friend I'm witnessing to never sees this little bit here um, about how, you know, people with handicaps couldn't fulfill this role in the temple or something, you know, because they're going to get the wrong message from it. This is what I mean by yeah, just finding passages uh, culturally embarrassing, and, I, and it's the kind of thing I want to help with a little bit. So, so here we go. What do we do when, we, when we're in this situation? Well, I have five steps that I encourage uh, people to try here. And by the time you work through these five steps, who knows, maybe you'll go from being embarrassed by the passage to actually boasting in the glory of the God who wrote that passage of scripture. So number one, first, grab some perspective. Grab some perspective. Say you're reading Numbers 5 and you're starting to panic a bit because you're thinking, you know, this doesn't seem to match the God I know of in the rest of the Bible. Well, get some perspective to help you calm down and, and think uh, through the passage clearly. And, and here's the perspective I'm encouraging you to take and remember. It's this, all your problems with the Bible come from the Bible. All your problems with the Bible, they come from the Bible. This is really important. 
So, so ask yourself, why am I having a problem with this Bible passage? Well, the answer is you're having a problem with that Bible passage because of all the things that the rest of the Bible says. If it wasn't for the rest of the Bible, you wouldn't have a problem with that one part of the Bible. We have to remember that apart from the Bible, apart from there being a God who reveals himself and declares his will, we, we have no foundation at all for, for any morality. It's only, it's only uh, the revelation of God through his word that, that gives us a, a platform, gives us a foundation on which we can make moral judgments about, say, murder is wrong and, and uh, kidnapping people is wrong and stealing is wrong and all these things. The Bible provides us uh, that foundation. But then the Bible also has something else which is absolutely extraordinary. It, it begins in the very first page of the Bible, the, the teaching that God has made all humanity in his image, and that this applies equally to women and to men. It applies equally to people who are uh, uh, high up in society and those who are low down. It's just as true of the slave, for instance, as, as to the slave master. It's just as true of little children as full-grown adults, of poor and rich, and so on, you, you get the point. It doesn't matter uh, whether someone is handicapped or not, or, or whether someone is really bright or not. It totally doesn't matter. All human beings are made in God's image. And then, and then elevating that, the New Testament tells us that this God who made us all in his image cared so much about us and loved us so much that he actually gave his son, the son of God, to to die for us. Such was his love for each one. And that this too is offered to all without exception and without favoritism, that all can be saved and adopted as God's children. And it's this, it's this astonishing teaching of the Bible, all humanity made in God's image, all humanity loved by God so much that he would give his son to die for them that has absolutely revolutionized the Western world. And, uh, and you can actually read a great big fat book on this by Tom Holland called Dominion, and he tracks this. And, and he points out that it was not obvious uh, th to many, many people groups throughout many, many periods of, of history in this world. It was not obvious that, that slaves should be treated equally to all other people. It was not obvious that women should be treated with the same dignity and respect as, as men. None of these things were obvious. And so he's pointing out that actually the, the reason we have an issue today with slavery and the reason we get pretty sensitive if we feel that, say, uh, women are being treated uh, poorly in comparison with men and so on, the reason we get all fired up about these things is because we have this inheritance that comes to us from the Bible and, and that this framework of looking at the world um, isn't just the property of Christians, but it's, it's mutually shared by all people in, in Western cultures that have been touched by the gospel and the message of the Bible. So all that to say, Matthew, that when you're coming to a passage that's, that's like, oh, I'm not sure I'd want my friends to see this, and I'm a little bit culturally embarrassed by this, just remember the reason you're having that reaction, the reason you're really sensitive about, you know, how a slave is being talked about in that passage or how women are being talked about in that passage, well, all of that comes from uh, the, the Bible. You have a framework of values that is Christian that you, would on that you only have because of the Bible's massive influence on you and on the culture um, around you. 
Yeah, so that book by Tom Holland accomplishes that end very helpfully. Uh, a more concise read, the Tom Holland book is huge, right? Like 650 pages mm -hmm. or something. A more concise read, I think less than 200 pages, so at a more popular level, is Glenn Scrivener's book, The Air We Breathe, How We All Came to Believe in Freedom, Kindness, Progress, and Equality, making a similar point, I think, to the Holland book, right? Yeah, thanks for pointing that out. And uh, I should say, I'm pretty sure I got this way of saying it from him, you know, the the perspective of all your problems with the Bible come from the Bible. I believe uh, Scrivener's done a great job popularizing the work of Tom Holland and, and others. Yeah, if we believe the Bible is the timeless message of the eternal God for all people throughout all time and from all cultures, wouldn't we expect that it would rub us the wrong way at some times and in some places? That's understandable. But the Bible, in the end, is nothing to be ashamed of. Amen. Yeah, that's right. And maybe this next step uh, would help uh, emphasize that too. Second step is compare and contrast. Compare and contrast. So uh, take take the issue that is on the surface or, or is popped up in, in the passage you're looking at and just take some time to compare how other cultures at the time uh, handled that same issue. So, for instance, in Numbers 5 here, we're dealing with a situation where a man suspects his wife has committed adultery, but there's absolutely no way of, of determining who is actually um, right in this case. And so, uh, the laws of Hammurabi address this same situation, same, same issue, exactly. And um, so, we're going to compare and contrast. This ancient law code uh, gave this as the solution forward. And it was, and it was this to, to take the wife and throw her into the river. And if she floats, she was innocent. And if she sinks, she was clearly, I mean, clearly she was guilty. And, and so, um, all of a sudden the, the Bible's solution to this similar problem is looking much more safe and, and fair and, uh, honoring, honorable. Obviously, in, in, the, in the Babylonian case I just mentioned, it's going to take a supernatural intervention for that woman to, to walk away with her life, right? Whereas in the Bible's instance, um, it's going to take supernatural intervention for the woman to be found guilty. And so it's very much uh, in favor of the woman in, in God's account. And, and so just by doing that little comparison and, con and contrasting, we we find ourselves much more at ease with, with what God is saying in this passage. Yeah, I love that uh, example you just gave of how the in the scriptures it's going to take a miracle for her, for her to be found guilty, supernatural intervention. That's great. And, and this comparison that you've given, some people might take offense at that a little bit initially, Mike, and say, wait, why, why are we comparing the Bible to other cultures? But the Bible does this too, um, comparing God's laws to man-made laws of other nations in Deuteronomy, I think it's Deuteronomy 4, Moses instructs Israel, observe the statutes carefully. This will show your wisdom and understanding to the nations uh, who will hear about all these decrees and say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. What other nation is so great as to have such righteous decrees and laws? So there is Moses telling them to compare the wisdom and righteousness of the decrees that God has given them, compare those to the laws of nations around them and see how God's ways are better. Yeah, that's right. The, the Bible itself invites that kind of inspection. So, um, so that was step two. Step three is 
is just simply read carefully. Read the passage carefully. So what I mean by this is that maybe uh, a lot of your problems with the passage is just because we haven't taken the time to really see what the passage is actually saying, to really think carefully through the passage. This step in itself can clear up many misconceptions. Uh, I'll try to walk through the passage without getting bogged down in detail, but, but also sufficiently enough that you can understand what's, what's going on. So, as we've already said, the, the husband is suspicious of his wife, and, and this is a really thorny situation, right? There's no witnesses, there's no way of determining whether adultery has happened, but because adultery is such a serious thing, it's not the kind of thing you can just agree to disagree on. So, so you can't figure it out, but you have to figure it out. This marriage is in serious trouble um, unless this impasse can be resolved. So God, through his law, he makes a provision to break the impasse, and it's called a trial by ordeal. Notice how this trial by ordeal, it actually protects the woman. This husband, though he suspects her of being unfaithful to him, and that would, you know, if, if, if you think that about your wife or, or vice versa, I mean, this is, this is huge, right? But he cannot abuse her. He cannot hit her. He cannot leave her. Instead, God gives away so that what is humanly impossible becomes possible, a way to find out the truth. If, and, and if she is innocent, all will be healed. This marriage can, can make progress again and can build again. The, the trial by, by ordeal was not a magical solution. It's not like there was anything magical in the dust that went in the water or anything like that. No, this, this was a procedure that people were to go through and that God himself would personally involve himself in. In other words, God is saying, I'll be the judge. You, you guys do this little procedure. And I, the one who sees all things, who knows all things, I will intervene to show you who was innocent and, and who was guilty. And so if the woman drinks the water and she isn't harmed, everyone will know she's innocent. The shame goes, the suspicions are gone. The man knows from God himself that his, his wife was honest with him and, and was faithful to him. This marriage is going to survive. Hey everyone, I'm just coming back in after Matthew and I have recorded to insert a little parenthesis here. None of this is meant to imply that if a spouse commits marital unfaithfulness that the marriage is is over and that in in you know only if this woman in numbers 5 is found out to be innocent can the marriage survive. Of course, uh, spouses can forgive each other. Not only can they, but they they do. This happens. The really difficult issue that's being dealt with here in numbers 5 though is that the husband is absolutely certain his wife has been unfaithful to him and the wife is insistent that she has not. That's an impossible situation um, and it, it has to be resolved one way or the other. So I hope this little clarification helps. There's a guy named Bricto. He notices that, that everything's stacked in the woman's favor. He says a jealous husband possessing not a scintilla of evidence against his wife is asked to subject her to a test in which all the cards are stacked in her favor. So I think just going through the passage like that helps us a lot, but we come to that last verse, verse 31, where it says, you know, the, the husband will be free from his iniquity, but the woman will bear her iniquity. And we might think that this means, you know, the man can commit adultery and not get judged for it, but the woman will. But that's actually not what the verse is saying. If you look at Leviticus 20 verse 10 and Deuteronomy 22 verse 22, you see uh, that the man, the adulterer, and the adulteress suffer the same penalty for, for the sin of adultery. This is not a men go free kind of thing. What it means is 
the man in this case has had suspicions about his wife and has sort of accused her and, and brought her forward into this trial. And if it turns out that, that she was innocent, he has actually um, brought a false accusation. He's had false suspicions against her. And uh, God in his word is saying that if this happens, the, the man is free from iniquity. He hasn't done anything wrong. So uh, just looking at the passage really carefully, in other words, uh, clears up some of our misconceptions and helps us to get uh, a more accurate understanding of what's going on here. Well, thank you, Mike, for those details, because I think it's helpful in a, in a difficult passage. Now, I've heard you speak on this passage before, and afterward you'll recall there was still one question that I had, and you, you actually sort of raised this, I think you did raise it in your introduction here a few minutes ago. Why is there no explicit provision for a woman who suspects that her husband has committed adultery? Yeah, so there is no specific provision. The one thing, I'll say two things. First of all, this is case law. And so the way case law works is it, it uses very specific example but then it expects you to know how to apply that to different situations. So I don't know that there's anything in this passage that says that this couldn't be flipped around, and if a similar situation happened where the woman suspected him, that uh, uh, people wouldn't be wise enough to say, well, well let's reverse. I, I don't know. I'm, I'm a little bit sketchy on that. But case law does work that way, where you, you get one example, and you learn to apply it to all kinds of different situations. But maybe here's a bit more solid answer. Uh, Roy Gain points out that that actually it's only the woman who needs this trial by ordeal. He points out that uh, in ancient Israel legal matters were administered by men and uh, dependent females came under their protection. It was men who initiated marriage and divorce proceedings. It was men who reviewed charges of sexual misconduct. Sexual misconduct could lead to uh, the ultimate punishment, capital punishment. And so Gain points out that women were especially vulnerable to a lethal suspicion of marital infidelity. I'm, I'm quoting him here at, at parts. Um, so so uh, Gain says, to protect innocent but suspected women from the inevitable bias of a male-dominated trial, God removes their fates from human jurisdiction. He takes it right out of human hands. Uh, he can be fair because he alone knows all the facts of, of a case. The suspected adulterous ritual is the only instance in all of ancient Israelite jurisprudence in which the Lord promises to judge and render the verdict himself by supernatural means. And here's, here's a great quote. He says, the right to such a Supreme Court trial belongs only to women. So, Matthew, does that help a little bit with your question? It helps quite a bit. I may still have a, a speck of a question, but I think... Uh... I think it's great. I mean, I think that, that part of the quotation that this is the only instance in ancient Israel's jurisprudence where the Lord promises to intervene by supernatural means is, is fantastic, and it shows his care for the women in the story. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so uh, this woman gets the Lord himself as, as the judge to, to preside over her case, yeah, which would be a great comfort if you know anything about who God is. Uh, so that's step three. Now, step four um, just check and see if there's themes in the passage that connect it to the rest of the Bible. And so when we do that, we look at this passage and we say, well, you know, here's a potential unfaithfulness of a woman against her husband. And we notice as we look at the rest of the Old Testament that, that the Bible develops this, right? And so Israel's sin against God and idolatry is, is seen as marital unfaithfulness. And God eventually responds, because it's so persistent, 
with this cup of staggering, the cup of staggering, which turns out to be exile in the Old Testament. And um, yeah, just that little realization um, maybe helps us a little bit too, right? Sometimes maybe the Bible slants things a certain way or or puts it as the woman who's under suspicion and, and so on, because maybe in part because God is setting up the world with patterns and types, uh, which he's going to be able to pick up and use to, to um, express something about his relationship with his people. Um, and really what this does is it sets us up for the final step I have. Number five, look at the passage through the Jesus lens. Look at the passage through uh, the lens of Christ. What if the Old Testament passage I'm struggling with is meant to make me struggle a little? What if it's meant to make me cry out for something better or someone better? What if there was a husband who didn't just suspect that his wife had been unfaithful, but he knew she had been unfaithful? And what if instead of letting his wife drink the cup, he actually wanted to drink it for her? And isn't this what our Heavenly Bridegroom has done? As Ian Duguid points out, we have all um, been unfaithful to our Lord and given our hearts to other gods and, and idols and, and pleasures and so on and been unfaithful to him. And yet our Heavenly Bridegroom, he, he drank the cup for us. Verse 31 says, the man shall go free from iniquity, but the woman shall bear her iniquity. But in our case, uh, the Jesus was the man who indeed had no iniquity, but he bore our iniquities. Mm -hmm. It was our cup he drank, and he drank it to the last drop. He took our curse, he died our death, he took our shame, all so that we could go free. And when we think about this, when we think about how I've been unfaithful to him, but instead of me having to bear the curse, he reached forward and drank the cup in my place. All of a sudden, I'm no longer embarrassed by this passage, but I'm, I'm boasting in it. I'm confident, boasting in, in my Lord Jesus, my faithful bridegroom, who takes the curse for his unfaithful bride. Amen. Wonderful that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, Romans 8, 1. And Mike, as you when you delivered this message to us in Halifax a little while ago, I think this last point that you've just made about seeing how it points to Christ and the gospel was what I enjoyed the most. And it's it's very instructive for all of our listeners in seeing Christ in all the scriptures. And that's a very heartwarming lesson from it too. Mike, I think we could add a sixth step on top of the, uh, the five that you've given us in dealing with these culturally embarrassing passages. Um, through all this episode, you've been mentioning the names of different Christians who have helped you wrestle with this passage. And so, step number six is, remember, God has given us the whole church to help us in the understanding, interpretation, and application of the scriptures. And we all gain help from other teachers. We read other books at times to help give us some insights in our understanding, and we appreciate these gifts to the church. We need others. We need to share our difficulties with others and get help from others. God has given us fellow students, and together we can see more in the Word than any of us can see on our own. Mike, I've, I've obviously leaned on you a number of times in getting help in interpreting the Scriptures. In fact, even before we went live and recording this episode today, I was asking you about something that I'm, I'm looking at. So, that's a regular practice that we learn and get help from others, too. Yeah, uh, thanks for adding that sixth step. Um, actually, it's funny because I, I had been wrestling with Numbers 5 and when, when a good friend of ours wrote to us, Helen and me, and, 
And she had just gone through Numbers 5 in her daily reading and had a very similar experience to what we opened with in the beginning of this episode. And so, yeah, we were sharing with her and, and then we were going to other books and, and teachers and getting help from them. And, uh, and now, uh, hopefully this podcast is helping some of you um, too. So we're all helping one another. So next time you come to a Bible passage and initially you find it a little culturally embarrassing, like, oh, I wouldn't want my friends to see this maybe. Um, try these six steps. Number one, get some perspective. Number two, compare and contrast. Three, read the passage carefully. Number four, look for themes that connect your passage to the rest of the Bible. Number five, look at it through the Jesus lens. And then number six, get help from others in the church. And you may just find that you're not wanting to hide that passage from your friend anymore. You're actually wanting to show it to her. Thank you for that teaching today and for that recap of those six steps. Hey, listeners, maybe take those six steps and apply them to uh, another passage right now while these six steps are fresh in your memory. Maybe maybe look at one of the passages related to uh, God's regulation for slaves and the laws related to that and see how this could help you in understanding and applying uh, and enjoying those passages still today. So thanks, Mike, so much for giving us this teaching today. Listeners, we've got a, another episode lined up for next week related to Bible interpretation as well. We're going to have a guest speaker on the podcast who's going to help us with some basic Bible hermeneutics, and we hope you'll join us for that one as well. We pray the Lord's blessing upon you, and have a great day today.